Well, good morning. Um, I'm Andrew Sharp. It's my privilege once again to uh, fill in for Matt this morning as he's out of town with his kids. Um, as, as Beth mentioned in the prayer, um, my eyesight is kind of an adventure at the moment. I had uh, an elective uh, procedure. It was like LASIK, only a much longer um, recovery time. And I'm really supposed to wear sunglasses when I'm outdoors at all times. Um, but, and I was rooting because of that, even though I love worshiping and preaching outdoors in God's cathedral, I, I was hoping for a little well-timed rain this morning so that we might be inside. Um, but even so, there, I, I just cannot preach with sunglasses on. I mean, that, that seems like some creepy 1970s cult leader. And... <laughs> So, um, and there, <laughs> so we're, we're going we're gonna to muscle through it. Um, last week we started looking at the book of Acts, which chronicles the early years of the Christian church. And um, it's the story of how uh, believers in Christ's resurrection and everlasting life coalesce as a church, you know, and figure out how to be a church. And, you know, we look at Christianity in 2018 and we see so many different denominations and some churches don't resemble other churches at all. And then others, it seems like the the differences are very, very subtle. Um, And and I think it's useful to to ask, you know, well, how did we get here? And while a thorough review of the sweep of Christianity through the ages would be fascinating, it probably doesn't lend itself to a sermon series. Um, Or if it did, it would take years and years. But that said, I think looking back in the book of Acts does help us center our faith. Um, And it reminds us that the, the apostles were a collection of people with, with all the, the human frailties that we have, um, they were not somehow these you know, superhuman figures uh, that are immortalized in stained glass. This morning we're going to be looking at Acts 13, which tells the story of a mission trip undertaken by several of the apostles and the varying receptions that they received on that trip. What's happened up until that point is the church has been growing. Uh, It grew dramatically at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended onto the uh, apostles. And even during persecutions, uh, the church grew. It even grew somehow as a consequence of uh, Peter being imprisoned um, and his miraculous... uh, Holy Spirit orchestrated jailbreak that we heard about last week. But Acts 13 sees the church for the first time looking to grow in an intentional way, in a a planned way. And it's a fairly long chapter. So I was glad to be reminded that this is the longest day of the year. 
So um, there's a lot of text. I'm going to be interrupting it annoyingly throughout, just so you know. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So this was a very, very socially and ethnically diverse church right from the outset. Um, and the mention of Menaean, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is fascinating as he and Herod grew up together. Um, Herod, you may recall, would go on to have John the Baptist killed and he would be a figure uh, presiding um, over the trials of Jesus leading to the crucifixion and yet Menaean becomes a Christian. And gosh, I, you know, it would be awesome if there was this separate little, at least a, a chapter you know, of Acts kind of talking about what happened there. Um, that must have been an interesting relationship between those two. Um, so continuing on. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from, for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Um, and in the, I think in most versions of the Bible, the Holy Spirit's words are in quotation marks, which is not inappropriate at all. But I think sometimes when we, when we see that, it becomes a little less relatable to us because we think that uh, the apostles are hearing uh, the words of the Holy Spirit in a loud, booming, echoey, deep voice. Um, whereas I think in all likelihood, the church... Uh, discerned the will of the Holy Spirit in prayer um, very clearly, but in much the same way as oftentimes when we are praying as, as groups, you do perceive and discern the Holy Spirit, even if it's not a, an amplified voice that everyone physically hears. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, which was a chief, chief port and uh, commercial center of Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. This is John Mark, not John who wrote John's gospel. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, and somehow I just picture him as like a Disney magician villain kind with the... It's terrible. He, he, no, sorry, this is my stuff. Um, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Paul, who was also called, I mean Saul, who was also called Paul, 
Saul being his Hebrew name and Paul being the Roman name, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. I can sort of sympathize with that this week a little bit. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. One important thing that happens in this passage is that for the first time in his life of ministry, Saul shrewdly introduces himself as Paul, Paul the Roman citizen, when he stood in the residence of Sergius Paulus. So he's now in the culture of the Gentiles. He's redirecting his his message. And using his Roman name may also have um, elicited more respect from the Roman governor, especially because Paul had the advantage of having a name that was essentially identical to the governor's name, Sergius Paulus. So he's kind of leveraging this, this common bond. It's also very interesting and, and no coincidence that Paul strikes the sorcerer temporarily blind um, because you may recall uh, part of Paul's own conversion experience was being rendered temporarily blind. So as I'm reading this, I'm thinking this may be almost less of a punishment than kind of a drastic measure to help him reassess who God is, who Jesus is, and what side he had been on. Um, Because clearly for Paul, that was an incredibly uh, significant and profound experience. I think, too, when we, when we hear about miracles like that, and we heard about a miracle last week, um, maybe to some extent we, we tend to feel disconnected from the text because that's not our everyday experience. Um, I, I think if someone in our congregation had, through the Holy Spirit, rendered someone unable to see, I, I probably would have been aware of it, and you would all be aware of it. And... That, that's not something that happens um, in day-to-day life. So we may sort of think, well, that's then, and that's a whole different uh, paradigm. But I, it, it is important to keep in mind that in Scripture, whenever miracles are mentioned, they almost always are there to get our attention. And when, when Jesus and his disciples are involved, it's to help us see the gospel a bit more clearly. So Sergius Paulus uh, definitely is impressed by uh, Saul and Barnabas, who we don't hear speak in that uh, passage. Now Paul and his companions, so now it's Paul and his companions, not Paul and Barnabas, interesting, 
set sail from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Persia and came to Antioch, which was the most important city in southern uh, Galatia, in Pisidia. Okay, so John left them, but it's John Mark. Most people uh, understand John Mark to be the author of Mark's gospel. And we aren't told why Mark leaves the mission trip. And there's sort of interesting speculation. Maybe he resented Paul taking the lead in ministry at that point, taking over a bit from Barnabas. The book of Colossians tells us that Mark and Barnabas are cousins. So if this Mark is indeed... uh, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, you might understand Mark's resentment a little bit. Maybe he was apprehensive about the dangers of the trip. There were definitely going to be perils involved. There were going to be people who were not receptive to their message. In Mark's gospel, he mentions an unidentified young man who abandons Jesus at the time of his arrest. And a lot of people believe that Mark is referring to himself. So it's quite possible that Mark just wasn't the most courageous, intrepid person of the group of apostles. Paul clearly had hard feelings about this. Um, And we find out later in Acts 15 that Barnabas and Paul had a what's described as a sharp disagreement um, over whether Mark would accompany them on their return trip. Um, And it ended up with Mark going back to Cyprus with Barnabas and Paul heading off to Syria with Silas. And I I, I would, once again, there are these gaps where I think I want scripture to fill it in. I want to hear that dialogue between Paul and Barnabas and what, how the argument goes. And I, and I just sort of picture it as um, Barnabas assuming Mark's going on the trip and Paul's like, um, no, I don't think he's going. And Barnabas, what are you talking about? It's my cousin. I, he's not going to not go. And Paul's like, oh, he's not going. He bailed on us last time and I, we need to take someone who we can count on. And them going back and forth, and I always picture Mark standing off to one side. It's like, guys, I can hear every word you're saying. And <laughs> importantly, though, however sharp a disagreement it was, they did reconcile. Um, and later in Scripture, uh, Paul speaks very highly of Barnabas. And in fact, Paul appears to reconcile also with Mark because they did work together later and uh, Paul described him as very useful to the work that Paul was doing. Here's what neither of them did in this situation. Neither of them said, you know what, I'm out of this. You know, it, I, you go, you do the mission. I, I'm just going to take my ball and go home. Neither one of them said that. Um, and that's an important point because disagreements do happen. Um, they happen when we're figuring out how to be a church. 
disagreements can be therapeutic. You know, Paul and Barnabas going their separate ways helped strengthen a broad number of fledgling churches. And no grudges were held in the long run. Um, although I, I am presently a deacon, I have served a number of sessions, a number of terms on session, which is our board of elders. And, you know, while I hope I, I certainly didn't seek out disagreements, I always felt that, um, that a spirited debate helped solidify our understanding of issues and help avoid unintended consequences. Um, I'm always skeptical of a quiet, unchallenged consensus because I think those can be really problematic. And I think it's usually it is not a good thing to just quietly acquiesce to a position or a course of action if we deep down think it's wrong. And disagreements are healthy, especially... Um, well, they're healthy when, as, as Matt has said a number of times, when relationships are not on the line. Um, Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement. Their relationship was not on the line. So, turning back to the text. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the, rules, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers... If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness because they complained. And after destroying seven nations, in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as promised. Before his coming, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. 
I know that was a lot. Um, But let me point out that Christians, those in the early church and Christians today, believe in something that actually happened, um, something that happened historically, that Christ died for the sins of humanity and rose from the dead. Christians don't believe in something um, conceptual or theoretical. we believe today the same thing that Paul believed then, that something happened in space and time that changed everything. Paul goes on. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers fathers, and saw corruption. He decomposed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through his, I'm sorry, through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said by the prophets should come about. And this is a quote from the prophets. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. All right. That's one of the few sermons we see uh, reproduced in Scripture. What did all that mean? Paul and Barnabas are now speaking in the synagogues, and this is a Jewish audience. So it's it's a different audience than the Roman proconsul. By going through that whole sweep of history, Paul is stressing that Jesus was a descendant from David, was hailed by his followers as a son of David, was asked by Pontius Pilate if he was king of the Jews. All of this, Paul wants his audience to know that Jesus has the royal pedigree to be the Messiah. So how did the crowd react to this. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Well, that sounds pretty positive. All right. People are energized. They like this message. They're getting asked back. Things are looking good. What could go wrong? Well, as Pastor uh, Furr talked about last week, there's always opposition. You could almost predict the opposition. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So this is a bigger than normal Sabbath crowd. 
But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they, Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust from their feet against them, and went to Iconium, and, went, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Shaking the dust off one's sandals was a gesture that Jesus had told his disciples to perform whenever they were in a city that was resistant uh, to his truth. That was from Matthew ten fourteen, And it, it served both as a reminder to the disciples to shake off the city's influence and also as kind of a public testimony to all the watching unbelievers that they had not deterred the disciples on their mission. And I think, too, it's a, it's a reminder to the disciples that failing to spread the gospel somewhere should not be felt as failure. Shaking it off is good advice for us. Maybe we don't feel especially bold about sharing our faith. Maybe there have been times when we've been um, sharing our faith with others and we did not get met with the grateful reception, whatever, that, that we had hoped receptivity. That's what I'd written and couldn't read. It's terrible. Um, it's okay. It is not a failure. doesn't mean we give up. Often, when a child experiences uh, failure in sports or, or academics, maybe a strikeout, a, a missed foul shot, or a bad test grade, we tell them to shake it off. And by that, we mean don't dwell on the future come back again with confidence and try. When we're talking about sharing the gospel, that's, that's advice we should take ourselves. In Luke's understated way, Acts 13 shows us people grappling with each other while sharing a common mission, the advance of the gospel. Barnabas seems to be a much more subdued personality than Paul. He is not explicitly quoted in the chapter. With all that's preached and said, there's no quote solely attributed to Barnabas. It's all Paul. And Paul, while brilliant, isn't, I don't know, he's, he doesn't seem like a diplomat, you know? Um, he's blunt, he's forceful, he's uncompromising. He's apparently not concerned with what people think about him. I, I doubt I would enjoy being Paul's traveling companion. He sounds like he'd be exhausting to be around all the time. 
maybe that was Mark's issue too. But that's every church, isn't it? I mean, I've been on, I've been on a lot of committees here and work teams with some wonderful people who don't approach work or issues the way I do. Um, I, I know there are folks who, when, when they want to discuss an issue, discuss an issue they discuss it, and, and they discuss it again, and then they talk about how they're discussing it, and, and it just goes on forever, and it makes me crazy. You know, I just, my instinct is, let's discuss it once, agree on a course of action, and get on with things. And that's really fast, and not necessarily the best way to approach things. And I imagine it makes other people crazy. Um, I'm not a process person. <laughs> um, and, I, and I know, I, I'm sure people politely get frustrated with that. Um, but that is really okay. You know, the, um, when there's a group of people who, who all talk the same way and believe the same thing, it's usually in the context of a horror movie. You know, like some, I don't know, Stepford Church kind of deal. Um, <laughs> glad to hear the chuckles. That's increasingly an obscure cinematic reference. <laughs> Um, I, I have always appreciated how the folks here at the barn uh, are, are usually able to disagree with each other lovingly. Um, gosh, we, we wrestle with issues about worship and mission and maybe musical style. Um, years ago, uh, our church left the Presbyterian Church USA and affiliated with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And you know, I mentioned at the outset that there are lots of different denominations, Christian denominations, and even within, within Presbyterian churches, there are different denominations who come at, come at things from a different perspective. And when we were um, in the process of leaving the Presbyterian Church USA, there were a lot of people in that denomination who were very unhappy with us. Um, but yet both the denomination and our church, you know, took time with the process, which probably went longer than I would have preferred, but took time with the process and really sought out a, a kind of Paul and Barnabas separation. You know, we're, we'll agree to disagree on some issues, but we agree that we all want to see God glorified. We all want to see believers grow in their faith and we all want to see the gospel reach as many people as possible. We may just have different ideas on how to do that. You know, Christians, we wrestle with social issues and hopefully think and, and rethink what it means to love others as Jesus loved us and loves us. I mean, I, I would be so leery of any church where the church leadership made it sound like they'd had it, they have it all figured out. Um, no one does. Um, I think I've quoted this at some previous uh, sermon, but I, I'm going to again. Uh, 
the motto of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church is, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity, truth, and love. I have always been proud to be an ordained elder in a church where that is the motto. In essentials, unity. Because there are essentials to the faith. Non-negotiables. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity, truth, and love. What we see in the in individual churches like, like our church, the barn, is, is really very similar to uh, what we see in Acts 13. You know, we see imperfect people listening to the Holy Spirit, trying to discern it as, as best we can and trying to live it out as best we can. You know, and to anyone who thinks doing church, doing church is is boring or tedious, let, let me assure you, it is not. It, it is one wild ride. Can I get an amen on that? Thank you, I heard a few. Sermon applications um, often say something like, in light of all I just said, do that. Um, and, and I don't think this is exactly that kind of sermon. Um, I, I want those who consider themselves followers of Christ to, to be encouraged that, that everyone's own personal style of sharing faith or interpreting scripture does not have to replicate someone else's. We can disagree lovingly with each other, but talk through faith issues with other believers, even if you don't end up in the same place, you'll be richer for the experience. And yes, disagreements can present a relational risk. But it's absolutely a risk worth taking. And relationships should never be on the line. And for those considering the gospel, or considering what it means to follow Jesus, please know that um, you know, while there are basic foundational elements of our faith, Jesus Christ was the Son of God, who willingly accepted death on the cross so that a sinful humanity might be reconciled with a God who longs for that reconciliation. There are many things we have to figure out. Principally, how do we love others as we are loved? How do we do that in such a challenging, often disorienting world? What does it mean to live out one's faith? To follow Jesus, to accept him as Lord, does not mean you have to speak a certain way or use certain phrases or, or lingo. It doesn't really necessarily mean you have to live a certain lifestyle or vote a certain way or live out your faith in a certain way. To the extent that you think that you might be giving up part of yourself to accept Christ, let me assure you that is not what happens. You will somehow become more yourself. That has been my own experience. And the New Testament both states and assumes that in virtually every book. 
So for those who, who trust Jesus already, the stories contained within Acts 13 should be an encouragement. They are not there to tell us what to do. They don't provide a template for spreading the gospel or even how to interact with each other. But it's an encouragement to see how real people deal with faith, with mission, with each other, just as followers of Jesus continue to do. For those considering the gospel, the encouragement is that the church grew because of, not because of supernaturally perfect people but as a result of people who were prayerfully trying to follow Jesus as best they could. When you look around and see imperfect people, you are not seeing a weak church, and you're not seeing hypocrisy. You're seeing flawed people who love God, trust Jesus, and are trying imperfectly to live that out. Would you pray with me? Father God, it is a challenging thing for us to think about how do we love our neighbor and each other? How do we follow you? How do we live at our faith? I pray for myself and for everyone here that we would lean into you and listen for your guidance on that. And I pray that that we would be open to disagreements, but loving disagreements. And we pray that through those interactions that we would grow stronger in our faith and deeper in our relationships. Thank you for this reminder that we are not so different than the people you built your church upon. Because you're building your church upon us now. In Jesus' name, amen.